0: Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you, Todd, for that introduction. That was very kind of you. It's a, a great honor and a privilege to be here speaking before you tonight. Let's open in prayer. God, you dwell in unapproachable light. You have um, called us to this place tonight to hear from your word, that we can hear more about what Thanksgiving is and what a lament is. And, Lord, that we would tonight be open to what you would have us learn through your spirit. God, that you would open these texts before us and open the hearts of those who are listening tonight. Um, Be with each of us this this next hour or so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a handout. Um, The lovely Mrs. Mahiran was handing these out to you. If you did not get one, you can raise your hand and she will bring you one. I'm not sure how large Dave's handout was last week, but uh, if this is dauntingly large, don't be afraid. We're going to get through it. Um, Well, I was asked um, to, I'm still humbled and and thrilled to be here tonight, and I was asked to to talk on laments and Thanksgiving, and one of the reasons um, that Todd asked me to do the lament part was the pro-life issue, and that um, I have a lot of experience with um, pro-life issues and sidewalk counseling and being at the clinic and hearing, uh, seeing a lot of things that are very sad. Uh, So we're going to get into laments later on, but I'm going to start with Thanksgiving. When we read the Psalms, you need not read very far before you run into two definite and seemingly opposite genres. Tonight, we'll look at the genres of Thanksgiving and lament. Now, sometimes they can be tied together. We'll get to that um, in a little bit. So Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The act of giving thanks, a prayer expressing gratitude, or a public acknowledgement, or celebration of divine goodness. That's from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And when we think of Thanksgiving, we think of football, we think of food, we think of family, um, things like that. But Thanksgiving's actually been a religious holiday too, and so I wanted to kind of couch it. You'll see where I'm going with this. Um, I love history, so you're going to get a little bit of history today. In 1623, Governor William Bradford of Plymouth Colony, one of the pilgrims, was the first to do a Thanksgiving proclamation. And if you know anything about the pilgrims, you know that their first uh, years in in the the colonies were rough, and the Indians pretty much saved their life. And so uh, in 1623, in November, um, he gave a proclamation. And I want you to just zone in here. The language is kind of... As is old, um, but it's, it's still worth looking at. Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, peas, beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forest to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, and inasmuch as he has protected us from the ravages of the savages politically incorrect there, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims with your wives and ye little ones do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of 9 and 12 in the daytime on Thursday, November 29th, the year of our Lord, 1623. Governor Bradford thanked God and declared this thanksgiving as a a testament to all that they had been through. And so Thanksgiving is tied to remembering. So Thanksgiving has to be tied to remembering. So if you flip over to page two, the Psalms are filled with Thanksgiving, gratitude, and celebration. However, when the Psalmist is giving thanks, and Todd alluded to this earlier about what, he, what Dave talked about last week, he's not giving thanks in sort of a vapid, shallow, Facebooky, Oprah challenge kind of way. He's not, you know, find five things you're grateful for, or go, and people talk about in a real shallow way. He's giving thanks for his attributes in a deep-rooted uh, knowledge of God. He's praising God for who he is. He's thanking God for his attributes. The Latin word for thanks is gratia, which is also a word for grace. And the Spanish word for, grace is actually, for thanks is actually, you know, gracias, and so thanksgiving is acknowledging grace and giving grace thanksgiving in english is a clunkier way to say you know you're giving grace back when someone says someone does something for you you say thank you um um, you're you're really saying grace to you or what grace that you gave to me or you know you didn't have to do that it was grace it was undeserved favor so thanksgiving is acknowledging grace and it's also the giving of grace there's a bunch of Thanksgiving psalms. I highlighted a few. And uh, what we're going to do, and eventually, on the next pages, we're going to talk about some repetitive refrains of Thanksgiving. So we're just going to walk through um, some of these. You don't have to look them up. These are all these are um, New King James. Uh, so if, if, if you don't like that, um, sorry. But that these are all New King James Version. Um, and since I got to teach, I get to use New King James. Um, <laughs> Psalm 717, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. 9-1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Thirty five eighteen. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. There's public uh, a proclamation of thanksgiving. Sixty nine thirty. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. That sounds like something that's corporate for not just one person, but for the body of Christ. Enter his gates, Psalm 11 or 104, 100 verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Psalm 106.1, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. And this is a theme now from... 106 to the end of the book. Um, in fact, 136 has the, the last part of that is his love endures forever, his, his mercy endures forever. And we'll get to that. 106.41, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. A psalm that's fulfilled in Acts when the nations are coming to Christ. And it's not just a Jewish faith anymore, but it's a faith for all who will believe from every tribe and every tongue. 107.1, give thanks to the Lord for his for he is good. His love endures forever. 118.1 is the same. Uh, 118.21, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And 118.29, again, his love endures forever. Psalms of thanksgiving are praising God and giving thanks for things that are beyond our circumstances. We tend to think of thanksgiving, giving. we can't really give thanks for certain things because it's they're not good or they're not... Our circumstances need to change, but we want to be able to understand how to give thanks in the proper way. So number three says, repetitive refrains of thanksgiving. Psalm 107 and 136 are excellent go-to psalms of thanksgiving that illustrate the different types of giving thanks. Um, and again, these are these are uh, written out for us there to look at, so let's just take a look at them. This is Psalm 107, and I want you to, to really put yourself... kind of focus in on what what he's saying here because there's a nice refrain going on. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. So this is not a good picture so far. Okay, their soul fainted. There's nowhere to go. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. So that refrain is going to come up again. Now he goes back, he switches gears, he goes back to those who were lost in darkness. Verse ten Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. So we see that they're in this situation. Not, they're not victims. Okay, verse... Uh, Verse 11, they rebelled against the words of God. They despised the counsel of the Most High. Because of that, they're in darkness. Because of that, God fills their heart with labor, weighs them down. They then cry out to him in their distress, and he saves them. Verse 15, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. There's that refrain again. 16, he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Notice again in 17. This is, is, they're fools. This is their own fault. They're doing things wrong. Because of their transgressions, they're afflicted. Because of their bad choices, they're afflicted. But they cry out to the Lord, and what happens? He heals and he rescues those who are being led away to destruction. 21, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. He continues in twenty three, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and at their wits end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And what does he do? He brings them out of their distresses. Distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. So, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. And he continues uh, with the rest of the, the psalm there. But you see a pattern where he is, he is taking, he is discussing, he is uh, discussing people who were uh, victims of their own sin, victims of their own blindness, their own idolatry, and he is discussing and and showing us how when they have cried out to the Lord, that the Lord has received them, that the Lord has heard them, that the Lord has healed them, and the response is thanksgiving. Now, at the bottom of uh, page five, I have a, a note there that this is seeing yourself in Psalm one hundred seven. I haven't been to seminary, and I haven't um, studied a lot of theology as much as Todd Bolander has. But um, and and so someone's going to say, "You're not in Psalm 107. You weren't there." And you're right, I wasn't there. But 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 we're we're called. We we can look in there and see see things ourselves. Okay. Here we go. God is a God of ends, which means he ordains all things that come to pass. He's sovereign. He sees everything. But he's also a God of means. He, meet, he uses people, events, and circumstances. Sometimes in the reformed world, we tend to talk about God being a God of ends and ordaining all things and, and doing all things, which he does. And he does all things well. The Bible tells us that. But he's also a God of means. He, he delights in using people. He delights in using events. He delights in using the body of Christ to accomplish his ends. So we, we want to we not confuse the fact that God is sovereign and that God does ev- can do everything and doesn't need us and all that is true, but he uses us. He uses his people to accomplish these things. So here's, here's how we see ourselves in this psalm. In uh, verses 2 through 7, we won't read it again, but you can look at it later. God has redeemed and rescued the psalmist. So we're on top of page six now. If you're a Christian, you've been rescued. You've been saved. So the question that is the question is who was involved in your rescue? Who is it that led you to Jesus? Was it your parents? Was it your uh, a friend? Was it someone from uh, work? Was it just some kind of crazy story? Someone was involved in your rescue. Someone was involved. Someone preached the gospel to you. And so when we, when we think about our lives and we want to give thanks, we want to, um, we want to be acquainted with these, these themes. How has God delivered you both now and then? Think specifically. I don't know about you. I, I was saved when I was 16. I had a very, very deliberate, clear conversion. And now for 20, almost 22 years, I've been a Christian. And I can tell you right now what my life would have probably been like had I not gotten saved when I did and when, and when the people involved in my conversion which would be you know my I can think of my grandmother Mahiran who uh, is in heaven now and she, her prayers for me and some friends from school and my youth pastor and just people just working in my life that I that I'm constantly thinking and I'm I'm always trying to send these guys emails and you know thank you again for doing for speaking for speaking into my life for for reaching out to me for um, Taking me to McDonald's and, and telling you know asking me questions about my life and whether I whether I believed in Jesus or not. Um, those are those are ways that God was using, God was rescuing me not by hitting me with lightning on a you know mountain road in Idaho or anything like that, um, like He did with Saul, but, but through His through the body of Christ. God has taken the wicked and who rebelled and has brought them out of darkness. He's broken their chains. So here's how do we see ourselves in this psalm. Number three, from what addictions or sin patterns has he made you victorious? Psalm 107 talks about God breaking chains, breaking their chains, breaking their slavery, redeeming them, bringing them out. From what addictions or sin patterns that you, did you have as a young, as a, as before you were saved or maybe early in your Christian walk that he's made you victorious in? And if, you have, if, if you're in the current struggle with one, then give thanks that you're struggling. Give thanks that, there is, that you are battling it um, with the strength that God provides who is instrumental in doing so, helping you? Uh, that's not clear. Sorry about that. It should be who is, in, who is instrumental in doing so, in, in, in showing you these, or maybe you have a prayer partner or someone in accountability or a, a community group leader or a care group leader, if you want, um, for, those of us old, for those of us who were old school. Who is instrumental in doing that? Who are, who, are your, who are your people that you can text at 2 in the morning and say, I'm really struggling with something? Will you tell me the truth about uh, the gospel? And it's so neat to be standing in front of you and seeing people here who I uh, who have been those people for me. It's it's kind of amazing, actually. Um, Number five, he talks about rescuing the wicked from destruction and affliction. Have you ever been close to the edge? Have you ever been close to the gates of death? How has God come to your rescue? What was, maybe it was, maybe you were the victim of someone else's sin, or maybe you were just so blind and foolish that you were running headlong into dangerous uh, things. How did God rescue you from that? Give thanks for that. God has calmed the storms inside us so that its waves are still. What storms has God calmed in your soul? What prayers has he answered for you that that were major events in your life that you wondered, how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? How is God going to do this? Almost like a lament. We'll get to that later. And he did. He answered them. And now we don't even think about. Oh yeah, remember how we how worried we were about that? How much that was a struggle? What was that? What was that guy's name? What happened? He did it. He he takes things away from us. He just takes it off of our plate. He answers our prayers, and he takes away our worry. So when we think about those things, we can put ourselves in these psalms. They're not about us. They're about God and God's rescue. But we're in there because we're His people. Psalm one thirty six similarly has a repetitive praise pattern of thanksgiving. And this actually, if you flip over to page seven and to page eight, um, it has <laughs> it has all of, all of the, it, this is a really great psalm, it's an example. And really, every, uh, if you've if you read through the psalms lately, you know that this is, this is in there. His mercy endures forever is the refrain of that. So let's just, let's go through this. And then I, I break it up a little bit. And this can actually be a template for your own life. I, I think that it's, it's a good thing for us to track the history of our lives. We're not, And when we do that, we're not putting ourselves in the center of the universe or anything like that. But we're, we're putting ourselves in the Psalms where we can say, here's my history. Here's my story. Here's how God rescued me. Here's how he, he put me in the, you know in the middle of... Whatever it was, it's for, for uh, me to, to hear his word. All right, so here we go, 136. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, his mercy endures forever. One through nine is a, a picture of a, a giving praise to God for things that he, only he can do. He is the one who made the heavens. He's the one who laid out the earth. He's the one who made great lights. He's the one who put the sun and the moon there. And so the first part of this Thanksgiving Psalm is for something that is something that is uh, attributes of God that are, you know, they call it uh, incommunicable, incommunicable attributes. They're attributes of God that we'll never have. We'll never have them. Okay. Um, that, That only God can do that. So he's giving praise for that. Then he gets into the history, and this is where you have a history too. This is Israel's history, but you have a history too. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, his mercy endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, his mercy endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. If you just circle those guys and Google them, they're, a lot, they're around a lot in the Old Testament. It's interesting. They're, they're in there a lot. These were some bad dudes who were in Canaan, and God just had to take them out. And he did. So all of us have... People like that in our lives. This isn't the imprecatory psalm part, but um, yeah. But, sorry. But, uh, but there's people who will, um, there's situations in, in life that are challenging and that God will just take away. He'll just make, make, it, make it clear. 21 gave their land as a heritage, his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel as servant, his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, his mercy endures forever. Rescues us from our enemies, his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. And then he, he comes back out with a thanksgiving there at the end. So the first three verses, he's giving thanks for things that God, only God can do. Only God can make the world. Only God can put the sun there. Only God can put the moon there. And that's, that's enough for us to, be, to, for us to worship because that he is so unlike us. He's completely, he's completely unlike us. He's completely unlike us. He gives thanksgiving for his creation, then he talks about how God has acted and rescued in the history of Israel. And in the same way, our history is important to, to look at. So if you've been, whether you've been a Christian for a year or six months or 50 years, you have a history. You have been rescued. And so the, the application to this is to give thanks and to get specific and to make a list. And it, it might be kind of weird to think about, but if you think about what we talked about with the pilgrims, I mean, he was giving thanks for beans and squash and food and all of it. He wasn't, he wasn't so modern that he thought, well, why would I give thanks for the beans? I just planted them and they grew. You know, I mean, it's, it's science. I mean, you know, it's, it's, science is the real miracle. No, he, he, he got that this was a... A miracle. No one really knows how those things happen. We, we say, we, we kind of think we do, but God does it. So give thanks. He is glorified and we are thankful. We can start with things like our salvation and work, on, work down to our health, work down to, to all the things that are working in our lives that are, that, that, that are supposed, that are, um, it's a miracle. I mean, just driving around is a miracle. Driving around in, in traffic where you're close to different cars and you're, you're safe is a miracle. Anyway. Think about who's helped you, who's prayed for you, who's let you cry on their shoulder, who's rescued you. Remember that God ordains all things, but He uses His body, the church, to accomplish what He has ordained. Next page. Here's my short list. This is sort of fun, but sort of serious too. Um, it's okay to remember. It's okay to thank God for the beans, okay, um, or the squash. Um, I won't go through all these, but the idea is that you. I just sat down and was like, "What am I thankful for?" And I just started typing. And each of these things is layered in the sense that each of these topics is, if I meditate on them for, any, for a few minutes, I'm going to realize more and more how great they are. More and more what a blessing the Word of God is. More and more what a blessing my wife, Rebecca, i is. What is. What a blessing that my body works, that I can see and I can hear and I can... I, I, my senses work. They don't work as well as they used to because i am be 38 in a few weeks, but um, they... Uh, they work there 's joys of life that my car works that I can listen to music that it 's a miracle that I can text people with myself i mean it 's just amazing world that we live in, and oftentimes we can get so distracted by the things of this world or distracted by our technology that we 're we're constantly you know worrying about it or complaining about it or whatever so anyway, I would encourage us as we as we look at Thanksgiving. To, and as we're reading the the Psalms of Thanksgiving, that we can practically work through, you know, these things. And I, I think I've been thinking about my grandmother a lot because she's been she was someone who prayed for me probably the most before I got saved. And just thinking, God put her on the on this earth. She was a devout Christian and uh, prayed for me all the time. And I, I I didn't realize it until after I got saved that that was part of what God was using there. And so just thinking about being thankful for her and she's in heaven now. But um, the idea that uh, we are, um, we're a body, there's a body of Christ that's, that's there for us to lean on. So that's the Thanksgiving section. Laments, part two. <clears throat> if uh, quoting Bob Dylan offends you, um, then cross out Bob Dylan and write Amy Grant
1: you guys actually okay
0: then uh carmen i I teach in okay all right i teach in a a christian school and sometimes i'll i'll make up latin songs on my guitar um for the kids to remember and i'll the tune might be you know Nirvana or something, and parents will come in and go, "What? Who's? What? That song sounds familiar. What is that?" And I go, "Amy Grant." (laughs) We can blot this out, right, Mark? Yeah, we'll talk later. All right. So laments. (laughs) Um, I love Bob Dylan, and so you have to hear me talk about him for just a minute. Here's one of his quotes from a song called uh, "Cold Irons Bound." There's too many people. Too many to recall. I thought some of them were friends of mine. I was wrong about them all. Just, I think that's cool. <laughs> um, he must have posted something that someone didn't like on Facebook. And his, 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 his friend list, just, he could almost see it going down. You know, tick, 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 tick. All right, so the, so the laments, the laments. This is a, this is kind of a lament, what he's saying. Um, A lament can be a verb or a noun. To feel or express sorrow or regret. To mourn for or over. If it's a verb used without an object, it's a typo there. Apologize. Number three, to feel, show, express grief, sorrow or regret. To mourn deeply. This is a deep in your heart, in your soul. This is a groaning. A formal expression of sorrow or mourning, especially in verse or song, a dirge or an elegy, which is another word for eulogy there. It's a lament. Something is wrong. Laments are expressions of mourning, sorrow, or grief that is telling the world that the world is screwed up and it shouldn't be. And to go further, it's like a reverse take on the problem of evil we, talk, we hear about in uh, apologetics. Um, the problem of evil is a skeptical attack on the Christian faith that goes something like this. So you have an atheist, let's say you're at USF and you have some professor come up and say, well, do you believe that God is good? And a little Christian student says, yes, of course. Do you believe he's all powerful? Yes, yes, of course. Well, if, if God was all, if God was good and powerful, if he was completely good and completely powerful, then why is there evil in the world? And the untaught Christian kid goes, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It. I don't know. And so the, the, the skeptics and the, the people who want to challenge the gospel and the veracity of the Bible use this. And in a way, of course, we know the answer. The answer is that because of sin, everyone's broken God's law and is guilty of deserving his wrath. And obviously there is evil that exists. And obviously, obviously there's a lot of victims of evil that exists. But from Genesis 3 until today and until Jesus returns, the world will remain broken and no one will fix it. Only the gospel can liberate people from it. And that's what we're supposed to be proclaiming. So the unbeliever looks at the world, sees its brokenness, and accuses God of wrongdoing. Whoever he is, whoever he is, whoever God is, they might say, if God existed, there wouldn't be this evil in the world. There wouldn't be journalists getting captured and beheaded. There wouldn't be sex trafficking in St. Petersburg. There wouldn't be child abuse. There wouldn't be, you name it, poverty, suffering. But what happens when a Christian looks at the world and sees the brokenness and doesn't see God anywhere? What happens when we look at the world and we go, again? Last, uh, yesterday, yeah, it was yesterday. Uh, yesterday, I was at the, the clinic on Central Avenue again, and there were nine women that went in, three took information. And it was, I mean, it was a good day in that there were about 10 of us praying, but that's nine women, nine women and men and families who are going to be broken and filled with regret for the rest of their life until someone goes and preaches to them and tells them the gospel. It's just like, here we go again. And there's times where I'm there and I'm thinking, I'm praying, we're, we're asking you to come, Lord, we're asking you for your presence. Josh has been there with me, Josh Wilson's a, a faithful, uh, Prayer, sidewalk counselor. And we sometimes look at it and go, What's going on? Why is this still happening? With all the people praying, why is this still happening? Well, that answer that you have in your own life, when you've been doing everything that you're supposed to do, when you've been praying, reading the Bible, going to church, paying your taxes, being faithful to your spouse, loving your children, doing everything right, staying late at work, doing all the stuff you're supposed to do, and then when you get laid off from your job, or you get fired, or people are gossiping about you, or people are attacking you for, for nothing, and you're, you are innocent in that sense. What gives? And we're tempted then to join the unbeliever and go, if God were here, if God were real, he would intervene. He would do something. Well, laments are everywhere. They're in the New Testament. Jesus gives us a lament in Luke when he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathering her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had a visceral uh, longing for his city that was going to reject him and kill him. He says in Mark 15, this is actually, I should have written this in here, I apologize. Mark 15 is actually a quote from Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's like the ultimate in lament. When God turned his back on Jesus and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you turned your back on me? When he absorbed the fullness of God's wrath, so Jesus was lamenting. He laments in Luke 3. Uh, Jerry mentioned this this morning when he said br- the, the story of bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. We're to lift him up. Um, Jesus answered and said, this is in verse 41, Luke 9. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. If you think about it, it's kind of weird. We, we can lament the fact that God doesn't show up or that we think God's not showing up. We can lament that. But Jesus was lamenting the world. Jesus was lamenting the same thing. He was saying, how long do I have to be here with this generation who clearly can't do it? You know, it's just a, it's an interesting thought. Clearly can't do it. He, he, uh, the disciples couldn't do it because they didn't, weren't praying or weren't fasting. Paul has a lament in Philippians 3 where he says, I walk, or many walk, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul was weeping about the fact that there were so many people who weren't hearing the gospel. He was weeping because there were enemies of Christ. Jesus and Paul were not detached observers of a broken world. They weren't sitting on the sidelines like so many of us do as Christians today. And I would argue, to push it a little further, I would say most of the, most of the Reformed world is very good at being detached and observing and saying, well, here's why we have the problem of, of homelessness. I've written a, a book about it. I know all the theological terms about it. I, I, I certainly understand the reasoning why you know, this and that, but we're going to stand detached away from it when we want to be engaged in it. So we, they weren't detached observers of a broken world. They ached because of sin and destruction that they saw every day, and therefore we should too. And I'm to, I'll say this later, but I'll say it now too. If, if, you don't, if you're not seeing things in your life that make you lament some, the lament, the brokenness of this world. Then I think um, I'll say it lovingly: You need to get out more. If, you, if you're not, if you're not lament, if you're not seeing things that make you sad and break your heart for the lost, then you are in an insulated ghetto of Christianity. Where you you listen and you, you can be and you can be really well taught doing that. You can hear good sermons. You can go to church, go home, go to church, go home, community group or care group or whatever, and and uh, and still miss it. And that's why when you know when we talk about things like the life issue with, with with Christians, a lot of times it's like, you know, this is happening. Come on, this is happening. And oh well, yes, but is that really effective? Oh well, yes, but is that really you know? We want, to det- we want to detach ourselves from it. Maybe we're afraid of it. Maybe we're whatever, but we'll get to that later. All right. There's basically three types. I thought this was really interesting when I was preparing for this. Um, the outline of Psalms in, in bottom of page 11. And I know I'm giving you guys a lot of information, and I appreciate your attention. If you have questions on stuff, just jot them down. We'll have time for that at the end. Uh, the theme of the book of Psalms is that God is king. And the first three psalms give us types of psalms that occur occur throughout the rest of the book. Psalm 1 is the blessed life. You know, blessed is the man who does not walk in the the counsel of the wicked. And he's like a tree planted by the water. He will grow. Psalm 2, the rule and reign of God. This is God's world. We give thanks because of it. You know, kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 3 is the first psalm of lament. And it's kind of a type of a psalm, which we'll get to. But it's weird where there's these sections in Psalms that start off just straight-up laments. Psalm 4.1, answer me when I call to you, O Lord. Okay, kind of, are you there? Psalm 5, give ear to my words, Lord, consider my sighing. Okay, I'm, I'm here, I'm sighing, I'm, I'm, can you hear me? So, uh, Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. There's something around me going on that is making me think that you're angry with me. Because I know if you're angry with me, I'm going to die. Psalm ten one. why do you stand so far away? Huh. Have you ever felt like God's far away? <laughs> I have, a lot. Why do you stand so far away? Where are you? The structure of a Hebrew psalm, we'll get to this. It's a, it's a type of literature, and this specifically goes with laments, that communicates with lines employing parallelism and imagery. In high frequency, that's from Mark Furtado's book. Images are the glory, perhaps the essence of poetry, the enchanted planets of the imagination, a limitless galaxy ever alive and ever changing. He's giving us these images in Psalms in the laments. Now, the parallelism is saying the same thing in different words, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I don't know, have any of you ever seen um, the mov- uh, any movies directed by Clint Eastwood? Have you ever seen Mystic River, Perfect World? is one of my favorites. And he, there's this technique, and I don't know enough about film to know what it's called, but there's a technique where he will uh, zoom in. The, the, the opening part of the scene, if you've seen the movie Perfect World with him and uh, Kevin Costner, it's from like the early 90s. And I think he does it in Mystic River too, where it starts, the music starts playing, and you start to see the image, and it's like almost a the camera starts to kind of come in zooming in on it's like okay here we go we're in a story now boom and then, this, then you're zooming in on exactly what you're looking at I think it's a field in the movie Perfect World and when the movie's over it's the same thing you're zooming out so he takes you into a story you know here's the story here's where you are you're in Boston or Texas I think was where the other one was filmed here's the story and when the story's done we're moving out and in the same way Uh, laments work this way. Laments start off with either a proclamation of grief. It almost sounds like a complaint against God. It probably is a complaint against God. I don't think it's a sinful complaint, just like Job. Uh, It's a complaint. It's asking the question, where are you? He moves into his grief. The, The camera starts to focus in. Here's where we are. An introductory appeal, he laments a situation in vivid and sometimes heartbreaking detail. Think of David saying, all night long, I drench my couch with tears. I cried all night because of this. So he's talking about it in vivid detail. This is someone who is not, you know, sitting on his couch going, well, you know, God is sovereign. He's sovereign. I just need to think about that. No, he's saying, where are you? And this is horrible, and I'm going to die. My enemies are going to triumph over me. My nation is going to um, be destroyed. Where are you? After he uh, gives the situation in heartbreaking detail, he confesses his hope and trust in God. Then he moves out. He sees the larger perspective ending in praise. There's only one psalm of lament that does not end in praise, and that is Psalm 88 which I thought was interesting. And you guys can look that up. Psalm 88 ends with just, there's a lot of uncertainty as though he's not able to, or I don't know why, not able to give God thanks, not able to give him praise, but he's, it's just, read it. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. It's kind of chilling too. He wasn't ready, He wasn't able to, to see the perspective. He had to stay in that moment. All right. Well, let's look at an example here. This is Psalm three. This is the first um, psalm, or the first psalm of lament. The context here, if you know the story, um, this is David wrote this when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. I don't know how dysfunctional your family might be, <laughs> but this would be worse. Um, anybody ever been a king? No. President? No. Governor? Your son tried to kill you? No. Okay. David's alone on this one, so um, um, had some, you know so thinking, speaking of Thanksgiving, the holiday, if, if your Thanksgiving is worse than this, OK. Um, right, this is a, this is a, a tragic um, story in the Bible. And if you think about it, when you study the life of David, there's really two Davids, right? There's the David pre-Bathsheba and post-Bathsheba. Pre-Bathsheba, you have sort of the ultimate king. This is the ultimate king. He's humble. He gives thanks to God. He's a warrior. He's brave. He's full of faith. Post Bathsheba, after that, he's broken. He's unsure of himself. He's ashamed. It just is not the same. There's an effect of of the sin that he committed there. So here it is. This is is when he is fleeing from Absalom. Oh Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves all around Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. He moves in, camera going in. I'm in trouble. How they have increased who trouble me. There's many people who are saying God can't help him. I mean, and you would, we would probably think that too. If a king was, if there was a rebellion, a, a traitor, like a, a, the king's son or the president's son or whoever it would be for our context, if someone was doing what Absalom had done, we all would probably think, well, gee, God's clearly not with you, man. I mean, this is not a good thing. There's no help for him there. God's trying to teach him a lesson. We might, we might even be like Job's counselors and say, hey, God's clearly got a plan for you. He's, he's, clearly, talking, he's clearly telling you something. But then he goes, he moves back. He says, but you, Lord, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. There's confidence. So he moves out. There's more confidence. I cried to the Lord. He heard me, verse four. And then he says, after he talks about verse two, there's many who will say there's no help. Look at verse six. There's confidence there. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who've set themselves against me all around. So verse two, look at all these people trying to kill me. But then in verse 6, he moves back. But I'm not going to be afraid of them. They say there's no help for me. Verse 7, arise and save me. And then he talks about what God has done for him. Then it becomes almost a psalm of thanksgiving, like we talked about. He's going to talk about the history of it. Here's the history. You've broken all these guys' teeth out. You've destroyed all these enemies before. And so salvation belongs to you. I'm going to continue to trust in you. That's Psalm 3. Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. There it is. We're zooming in. He's right there. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. You go back on page 13 there. He moves in. He moves in. To the camera starts to move in there. Make haste to help me, O, o, o Lord. There's people, are, they're, they're seeking my life. There's people that are trying to kill me. Let them be ashamed. Let them be confounded and confused. Turn them back who desire my hurt. Turn them back. Turn them away. Verse four, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. He moves back now. He's talking about God's goodness and his, um, uh, those who love your salvation, let God be magnified or glorified. Then for verse five, he goes almost in back to, he almost goes in again to um, lament. I am poor and needy. He's contrasting himself with Four. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Sort of by implication, I can't do that right now. I wish I could. I'm not that guy right now. I'm poor and needy, verse 5. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So we have the appeal. Help me, Lord. He pronounces curses on those who are trying to destroy him, blessings on the righteous, and the hurry to help. Again, he starts out with an appeal, he laments the situation. Then he moves out, repeating the help and the appeal. And this this is one of those things that's um, uh, uh, kind of awkward for us in the New Covenant era or, or modern America or whatever for us to pray. This we'd be like, I don't know if I really want to to pray this way. Um, and and I, I can just give you an example from my own life. Um, my uh, last year, I had uh, um, my my ex wife had. Uh, Petitioned the court to move my daughters from Florida to Oregon to, so that they could be with um, my ex wife's new uh, uh, husband. And when we, uh, Rebecca can tell you about this, when we were headed down to Bradenton to go to court and to testify, we were praying psalms like this. I was praying not that God would destroy them and not that their teeth would be broken or anything. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we were, no. Uh, but, but that God would confuse and confound their efforts to try to take the girls away. And he answered those prayers. And it was really cool. And so, and, and, and really in his mercy, doing that for their sake as well. And that's another story. And you didn't come here to hear that kind of story. But the idea is that we can pray those prayers and say, you know what, God, stop this from happening. When we're at the clinic on, on um, Saturdays, we pray all kinds of things. Josh can testify. We pray that the doctor's car won't start. We pray that the doctor gets the flu. We pray that the women who are going to come can't because they have car trouble or whatever. We pray that there's people in the clinic that are going to be mean to them, that are going to be rude to them, they are going to make them feel uncomfortable. We want God to use any of those things to get them out. And it's okay for us as New Testament Christians to pray that way. We tend to, well, I don't want to pray that because it just sounds kind of, it's okay to pray that way because um, God is glorified by it. Psalm 142 is another one. And this is the last one. um, And we have an outline for that and then we'll be finishing up. A prayer when he was in the cave. It tells you something about this context. If your king is in a cave, okay, uh, regardless of what you think of President Obama, if President Obama has to address the nation from a cave, this isn't going well, okay? From a cave. He's not in the White House. The bad guys are there. He's in a cave in Virginia somewhere, okay? That's not going well, okay? So there's our context. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. He's honest. He's not afraid. He's not trying to put on airs here. I declare before him my trouble. And he's in trouble if he's in a cave. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. And this is a classic, um, a classic uh, psalm because of the, the structure of it. He starts out crying out. He's complaining. Again, he's in a cave. He's alone. He's afraid. He's ashamed. Think of the shame if you're a king in a cave. You're not fighting You're, you're not fighting the bad guys. You're not defending your country. You're, you're, you're in a cave. You're holed up. And they're singing songs about what a loser you are. They're singing songs about how scared you are. He says, when I, my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. And the way in which I walk The lament, I don't know why there's a C there, sorry. Um, They have secretly set a snare for me. I'm afraid to go outside of my cave. Look on my right hand. Look, God, there's no one around. There's no one who's on my side here. I'm by myself. There's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I mean, that's the epitome of a lament right there. No one cares. It's I'm, you know, alone. I'm alone. It reminds me of Job being alone in his grief and and his counselors who come and make it worse and say, well, you're not really alone, Job. I mean, God's sovereign. God's everywhere. How can you say that he's alone? Let me fix your doctrine. David is completely alone, feels completely like a failure but he's going to trust in God here. Look at what he says. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Hear me, Lord. I am brought very low. I am at the lowest point here. I need your deliverance, because I can only, cry. I can only go to you because I'm alone. There's no one else I can go to. That's kind of the great thing about a lament, is there's no one else to go to if you're alone. And then you find out you're not alone. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Isn't that great? He ends knowing that God will provide for him. God will deal bountifully. Bountifully means with, you know, great abundance, with great um, treasure. There's going to be a lot of blessing coming to him. He's going to do that because of his sake, not because of Um, not because of David's righteousness or that David would deserve that kind of thing. So, we made it to the end. (laughs) We live in a broken, it was one of the things that Darren says a lot and I like to say it too. I don't know if he got it from Keith Green, but Keith Green said it a lot too. Sin sick, broken, sin sick world. There is suffering and violence everywhere. We live in a city of broken and lost people. We should lament this Give thanks that we are in a place to proclaim the truth and the gospel to our dying city. Like I said, if, you don't, if there's nothing for you to lament, then you need to get out more. We have 10, clinic, 10 abortion clinics in our area. This fact alone should fill us with lament and weeping. We should pray psalms of lament because we know God hears us. That's why they're there. The laments teach us that we can be honest with God. We can tell him anything. We can bring our complaints to him. We should not feel ashamed if we're complaining about our situation. If something happens, and there's a job situation, there's a relationship situation, there's a, you know financial situation, and we're crying out to God in, in in despair, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. That's actually the most real and most honest, and God is most glorified when we're that honest with Him. And not hearing our, you ever, you know you ever pray and you hear yourself praying, and you're like, is this prayer really good? Is this prayer okay, God? Like, am I doing this right? Like, what is that? We just pour it out. Just pour ourselves out. David turned to God when he could turn nowhere else, when he was surrounded and afraid. And we may not be facing Absalom, Saul, or the Philistines, but all of us face trials and fears. There's people here tonight who are facing relationship trouble, financial struggle, fear of safety, health concerns, terrorism. Depression, despondency, addiction, pain, etc., cetera, et cetera, And all of them, all of them are addressed in the Psalms. David faced in, in, all of them. And so we need to be able to look at those and pray them ourselves. And we have about 10 minutes for questions. It's 7.30.